Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Leslie McClurg in for Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, itchy eyes, runny nose, sneezing. Allergy season is brutal this year. And it's not just me. A medical anthropologist, Teresa McPhail, says 40% of people on the planet are allergic to something. And those figures could rise to 50% by 2030. Many factors are at play, climate change, stress, genetics. So there aren't easy answers, but there are some things you can do. We talked to McPhail to better understand why we're sneezing more and learn about what can help. Her new book is Allergic, Our Irritated Bodies in a Changing World. That's next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Leslie McClurg. I'm in today for Mina Kim. Hay fever, peanut allergies, eczema. Either you have an allergy or you know someone who does. And the number of people suffering from allergies is increasing. Teresa McPhail has allergies, and her father died of a bee sting, which inspired the new book, Allergic, Our Irritated Bodies in a Changing World. After writing it, McPhail made some unique lifestyle changes. She stopped taking daily showers and changing her sheets as often. She started eating better and sleeping more. In the next hour, we will discuss what inspired those changes and learn much more about how we take care of ourselves in a changing world. Welcome, Teresa. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Uh, not to start off on a on a sad note, but but as we mentioned there, your father tragically died of a of a bee sting, of a serious allergic reaction to the venom in a bee sting. Tell us what happened. Sure. Well, it was 1996, which is going to be important in a second. And he was in his car with his girlfriend, and they were on their way to the beach. It was a late summer day, and so he had his window open because he happened to be an inveterate smoker. And they were at a stop sign, and a bee on its normal pollen-collecting trajectory just happened to fly in his window, um, got confused, and stung him in the neck. And that set in motion a lot of biological mechanisms that produced an outsized response. And he was unable to get help that day. And as I said, it was 1996. So one of the interesting things is we were just starting to see a spike in food allergy and increases in anaphylactic events, which is what my father was coping with that day. And so he drove to a pharmacy and was unable to get an EpiPen injection or an injection of adrenaline because at that point, uh, pharmacists could not dole out anything without a prescription. But then an ambulance showed up and there weren't any mandates in place. So at that time, 
Uh, you could or could not carry an EpiPen in your cab. It wasn't mandated. So the cab that arrived to help him didn't happen to have an EpiPen on hand. So all they could do was try to stabilize him until he got to the hospital. And unfortunately, he was dead on arrival. And the whole event took about 30 minutes. I'm so sorry to, to hear about that loss. I do want to underline, I think that's fairly rare. Do we know how often an allergic reaction is lethal? It's incredibly rare. So if you think about it, millions of people are getting stung every year by a wasp or a bee, but only about 60 of them will will succumb during an anaphylactic event like my dad did. Wow. Well, you were personally diagnosed uh, with four different respiratory infections, I think, in 2015, which you later learned were allergies. Uh, how did that process, that diagnosis, a sort of saga or journey unfold? <laughs> it was quite a saga. And I'd like to say for anyone listening that's going through that saga, it can take quite some time. I think a lot of people are surprised to know that sometimes an allergy diagnosis can take years to be completed because it's so tricky. So for me, I just was experiencing a lot of colds and respiratory infections to the extent that I was having maybe four or five every winter, spring season. And that's a little bit much. So my physician decided there had to be something wrong with my plumbing was the technical term she used. (laughs) (laughs) So she sent me off to an ears, nose and throat specialist who scoped me and just could see the irritation uh, lining my nasal cavity and said, you obviously have an allergy. And that was kind of news to me because if I had an allergy, I thought, well, it must be fairly mild because, you know, I had friends with serious allergies and I thought, well, that's not me. I'm not sneezing all the time. I'm not visibly irritated. My eyes aren't red. And so I went off to see um, an allergist eventually. And it turns out that I am a very special person in a not so special way. So my body produces very low levels of the antibody IgE. And IgE is tied into a lot of allergic reactions, not all of them, but it's a major driver. And that means that I can't be tested either by skin or by blood because I have such low levels of this antibody that they can't really tell what I'm allergic to. It looks like if you just look at the test that I'm allergic to nothing. And so that what that really means is they have to go by the localized reactions. So the cells in my nose are obviously, in, uh, and my eyes are obviously reacting to something. But if I wanted to find out, I'd have to take a dropper full of some, like tree pollen and then put it in my eyes or spray it up my nose and then wait to see what happens. And unsurprisingly, I am not willing to do that. And so how do you know what you are allergic to? Or do you have any idea at this point? You know, you become, and I'm sure a lot of listeners will completely recognize this, you become uh, your own detective. So whenever I'm feeling it, whenever I feel um, a little bit stuffy or I notice that I'm having a sneezing fit after I touch my eyes, I just pop open a, a pollen app and I do my best and I think I've narrowed it down. I think it's grass. I think it's grass and ragweed, but I will never know for sure, again, unless I'm willing to take a little bit of that pollen and inject it into my nasal cavities. Well, since you're not going to do that, what no. do you do on those days when the pollen count is really high to kind of you know protect yourself from the environment? I use Flonase, which is just an intranasal steroid that kind of tamps down the response. And I have specialized prescription eye drops that my allergist gave me to just protect me from that route. I don't take a systemic 
um, antihistamine, which is the oral one. So if you take an oral antihistamine, it's basically acting on your whole body. And because I only have a localized allergic response, my allergist was like, there's no need to do that and then have side possible side effects. So I just take care of the problem where it is. And what about wearing a mask or showering more those days? Are there other ways you can kind of like put a bubble around yourself to protect <laughs> yeah. yourself? Yeah, I mean, for all allergies, the number one treatment is avoidance. But if you are allergic to something like grass, good luck, right? And so you could wear a mask on high pollen days. And in fact, just anecdotally, I heard from several researchers that during the pandemic, when people were walking around outside, remember that brief period where they weren't sure if it was okay to walk outside without a mask, so people were masking up at all points? You did see less asthmatic events triggered by pollen. So a lot of people were benefiting from the mask use. And then just when I get home, if it's a particularly bad day, and as you mentioned, it has been particularly bad this season. So when the pollen load is really high, what I try to do is I'll come home, take a shower just to get it off of my skin. When you're walking around outside on a high pollen day, you're basically like a piece of sticky tape and you're just getting all of those particles attached to you. So it's a good idea to change your clothes and take a shower if you have moderate to severe respiratory allergies. Well, it's obviously a little tricky to pin down exactly what you're allergic to, but let's just talk about exactly what an allergy is. Sure. And this is actually when I was talking to all of the experts around the globe about allergies, the one thing they really wanted to underline is the difference between an allergy and a sensitivity and an intolerance. So a good rule of thumb is for an allergy to be an allergy, it really has to be activating the immune system itself. So I'll use milk allergy versus milk intolerance. It's a great example. So if you have a milk intolerance, you're pro you don't produce the enzyme that allows you to break down that protein. So your stomach gets really upset. The weird part is that an allergy, if it's milder, will have the same symptoms. So you might get an upset stomach, you might feel similarly. So it's kind of hard to tell sometimes what you have without allergy diagnosis. And the milk allergy is your immune cells. So it's those IgE cells kicking in to cause and drive the reaction. A sensitivity is really tricky to explain. So when you go in to get a diagnosis for allergy, I'm sure a lot of people listening will have had this done. So it's you get a skin prick test where they deliver a small trace amount of whatever it is, so grass pollen, tree pollen, uh, peanut protein, underneath your skin, and then they wait 20 to 30 minutes for a reaction. Those reactions are not testing for an allergy. What it is is testing for the sensitivity. So you can have a false positive reaction, by which I mean your skin is sensitive, so your cells are sensitive to the thing. So let's say it's tree pollen, and you your skin forms a wheel, which is basically just like a mosquito bite. But the tricky part is, is that doesn't mean you have an allergy. It means you're kind of predisposed to maybe develop an allergy if you come into repeated exposure to that. But it doesn't necessarily mean that when you come into contact with that tree pollen that you will respond. So a lot of people share these pictures of like their arms or their upper backs just covered in wheels and they say, look at all these things I'm allergic to. 
Well, there's about a 50% false positive rate on that. So you might have produced a wheel, but you're not actually responding. Your immune system isn't kicking in when it comes into contact with something. So what do you do with that information? Well, you see an allergist and you keep track of your symptoms. So a good allergist will look at those tests and then will listen to your symptoms and when you're having the symptoms. And it's kind of like putting together a mystery. So, you know, they're a little bit like detectives. And a good allergist will have, you know, decades of experience and kind of have an intuition about what is happening in those scenarios. It's which is why it's really crucial if you have a moderate to severe allergy to actually see an allergist and not your general physician, because most GPs get about two weeks of training on allergies in med school. And so sometimes I, I would hear allergists tell me that it's quite frustrating because sometimes a doctor will t mistake that test. So the doctor themselves will not understand the difference between a sensitivity and an allergy. So they won't necessarily read those test results correctly. We're talking about allergies, why we have them, why we're getting more of them with Teresa McPhail. She's a medical anthropologist at Stevens Institute of Technology in New Jersey, and her new book is Allergic, Our Irritated Bodies in a Changing World. And we want to bring in callers to the conversation. Do you suffer from allergies? Is it debilitating? What's worked for you? Have you noticed that your allergies are getting worse in recent years? Email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org or find us on Twitter or Facebook, Instagram. We're at KQED. Forum, or you can give us a call at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Michael tweets, I realized I was allergic to shellfish in my 40s when my nose stuffed up after eating shrimp, and for the first time in my lifetime this happened. I had a similar reaction when eating strawberries, so I just avoid them. I cope with pollen reactions by having a HEPA filter in my bedroom. We'll talk about other strategies uh, that can help kind of, again, put a bubble around you to prevent or protect you from allergies as especially as our world begins to change. We'll talk about how climate change and stress are factors. Stay with us. We'll be right back after this break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Leslie McClurg. I'm in today for Mina Kim. This hour, we're talking about diagnosing, treating, and living with allergies, and why for many of us, they're getting a lot worse. We're talking to Teresa McPhail. She's a medical anthropologist at Stevens Institute of Technology in New Jersey, and she's written a new book, Allergic, Our Irritated Bodies in a Changing World. Uh, Teresa, I've heard that in a big family, older children tend to have fewer allergies than, than younger siblings. What's going on there? It's related to something called the hygiene hypothesis, which is only partially correct, and, and I'll walk you through that. So if you've heard of the hygiene hypothesis, you've probably heard something like, we're too clean, we're not letting our children lick enough dirt. <laughs> Suck <laughs> <not>. enough rocks. <laughs> That's right. Right. Um, they're not getting licked by dogs enough. Um, and that's partially true. So a researcher in the 1970s was doing a meta-analysis. So he was basically looking at a lot of other studies and the data around um, respiratory allergies and asthma in particular. And what he discovered was that in multi-sibling families, the youngest children seemed to have some sort of protective effect. So while the older children might have an allergy, the youngest child often didn't or had a lower risk of developing it. And he posited that that was due to being introduced to more germs along the journey. So obviously, if you have children, you know they're a germy lot, and they bring home a lot of um, bacteria and viruses. And so his theory was that the older kids were going out into the world, bringing back these infections, and that repeated infections were actually having some sort of protective effect on the child. And we know that that's, that's partially true. The, the data for it is there were key studies done in Germany and um, in Switzerland that showed that if children were, it's called the farmhouse effect. So if they were growing up on a farm and they were being carried in and out or playing inside a barn, but the trick here is that it had to have livestock. So you had to have livestock on the farm and in the barn. And so if you were bringing kids in and out at a young age, so we're talking from birth to around two to three years old, you would see much lower levels of allergic disease in those children as adults. And so it, they were thinking, well, maybe there's something to farm dust. So there's lots of bacteria in a barn. There's lots of animal dander in a barn with livestock. There's also allergens. So there's hay effluvia and all kinds of things going on. So that maybe there was some sort of special magic pixie dust effect to farm dust that was protective. But the reason we know that the hygiene hypothesis can't be it, it can't be the smoking gun, is because we see in places that are still having large um, families, so in places like rural Uganda, where they still have, you know, three or four children, and they're living on farms a lot of the time, we're starting to see high rates of sensitization and higher rates of allergic disease, despite having all of the same um, things in place as those early studies. So we know it can't be as simple as that. And But I have heard, right, there is some evidence that farm animals and or dogs bringing in sort of bacteria into the home can help your immune system. And, and, and those families do, or those kids do tend to have better, uh, you know, sort of suppress or, you know, able to suppress allergies. Is that correct? Yeah, that's absolutely right. So if you, especially, especially dogs. So if you have a dog, again, so the magic time period for immune system development is from birth to about three-year-old. So if 
you have a pet in the house during those years, you do have a lower rate. And they do think it's because of the bacteria being um, brought in by the dog. But for all of those parents who might feel a little guilty that they are dropping their children off at preschools, preschools have the same effect. So if you're dropping your kid off at a preschool uh, at a young age, they do have lower rates of allergies when they grow up. So that does kind of support the hygiene hypothesis as well. And is this true for adults as well? So you've, you've stopped showering as, as frequently <laughs> recently. So should we get dirtier as well? I'd just like to say for all the listeners that I'm perfectly clean. <laughs> um, yeah, so I did that for my skin microbiome. So... I basically am just trying to, the whole point of um, the hygiene hypothesis, or now it's called the old friends hypothesis. So there's this hypothesis that evolutionarily speaking, we grew up alongside a lot of commensal bacteria. So bacteria that aren't harmful to us and in fact are helpful. And so they're the old friends, there are old friends. And so I try to make choices that don't just strip bacteria off my skin. So I stopped using harsh, harsher detergents and soaps. I try to shower every other day just to let my skin microbiome do its thing. I'm very careful about what I put on my skin. The same reason I change my sheets less often because in your, you have like a bacterial colony in your sheets. I know that sounds disgusting, <laughs> but it's actually, I, I mean, it's partly we just have to change our attitude. Like not all bacteria are bad. Um, and, you know, some of the things we do, like hand sanitizer, cleaning products, antibiotics is a big problem because they're like sledgehammers. They're killing all the bacteria, not just the ones we want to kill, like, say, cholera or TB or, or things that are obviously bad. Some of these things we actually do want to keep around because they're helping the ecosystem that exists on our skin and in our gut, the gut microbiome, to do their jobs, and they're kind of regulating our immune function. Well, let's bring a caller into the conversation. Erica in Elk Grove, you're on the air. Oh, hi. Um, thanks for taking my call. Can you hear me? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, okay. So um, I am um, I am allergic to shrimp, and I'm very sensitive to uh, the cat fur, and I have a an reflex reaction as a result. If you know, um, I eat that or it touch like a place that the cat was, so I had to go through a homeopathic treatment for years. And then the first sign that I know something is not quite right, it's like a red bump on my eye, and then after. I feel like my stomach hurts really bad. And then the whole reaction starts. Um, so I have a question. Um, do you know if there is a relationship between the cells in the eye and the stomach that can trigger um, this kind of reaction? Teresa, any idea? Well, so I can tell you that our, everything that comes into contact with the world has a set of immune cells called mast cells. So your skin, um, your mucous membranes, like the lining of your intestinal tract, um, all of everything that comes into contact with the world has these cells and their job, if you like to think of them as the conductors of the immune system, they can set off a reaction. So a mast cell, um, when they are threatened or damaged, will send out a, a signal called histamine. 
which is, you've heard of it because you've heard of antihistamines, right? So histamine uh, in your body does several things. One, it can trigger your mucus buildup, so you start to get stuffy, runny nose. Um, it can cause swelling, so you can get uh, swelling in the area that's being affected. It can cause rash and itch. In serious, so as you move along the severity line, it can also start to affect the um, muscles around your lungs, so you can get constricture, and which means it's harder to breathe, which is what happens during asthma and what happens during an anaphylaxis attack. And then at the very end of that, you get your blood vessels dilating, and that's so that your other immune cells can get more quickly to the thing that they think is threatening them, but at the same time, that dramatically drops your blood pressure. So it can, in some people, end up causing a cardiac event. So it's kind of like a ping pong ball reaction and a nuclear reaction. So if you've seen those videos, like someone throws a ping pong ball into a room filled with mousetraps with ping pong balls, and before you know it, the whole room is exploding, that's kind of what happens. So if any of those cells um, come into contact with something that they don't like, they do have the capacity to trigger a more systemic reaction. So I don't know exactly what's going on with you, but that is possible. Well, another listener writes, I had a dairy allergy when I was a child, and I had severe hives all over my body, but I outgrew the allergy by the time I was a teenager. I also had an allergic reaction to anchovies when I was pregnant after never having had one previously, but a lot of my family members have fish and shellfish allergies, so are allergies hereditary? Yes, they are. So, But what is hereditary is not the allergy, it's the predisposition. So there are about 141 different gene segments that we found that correlate to something called atopy. So if you're an atopic person, you have more IgE. So that antibody that I was talking about earlier. So you'll have more of it circulating. And the other thing is, is those mast cells that I just talked about in a highly atopic person, the mast cell will have more receptors for IgE. So you're basically more prone to developing a sensitization and allergy. That being said, it's not just genetics because there's lots of cases where um, some members in a family will go on to develop an allergy and others are fine. So it's only part genetic. It then has, you have to be triggered somehow. So it's about how your environment interacts with those genes. Well, let's go to Cindy in Sacramento. Cindy, you're on the air. You have a question? Hi. Yeah, I noticed that when I after I went through menopause, it seems like my allergies worsened. And so I was curious if there was a hormonal connection to allergic reaction or allergic yes. or developing them. Yes, you're absolutely spot on. So a lot of things can affect our immune systems, but hormones is a big one. And so unfortunately, estrogen is is when we go through so pregnancy or menopause when you're getting those estrogen spikes it can actually lead to people developing new allergies their allergy profile changing significantly because the estrogen is impacting the immune function and interestingly enough um, testosterone has kind of a protective effect 
So that's why you'll see, like, in children, there will be more boys that have asthma. But then as they grow older, they often get the asthma under control. And the reason is their testosterone kicks in, and it actually depresses the immune system function just enough that their allergies get under control. And unfortunately, estrogen has the exact opposite effect. So you are not imagining it. It is a very real thing that's happening to your body right now. Our listeners are helping us kind of tick off the, you know, genetics, hormones. Now, uh, Martine writes, since allergies are an immune response and chronic inflammation has been linked to everything from Alzheimer's to bowel cancer and rheumatoid arthritis, are people with overactive immune systems and allergies more likely to get these inflammation-caused illnesses or are specific autoimmune dis- immune diseases more of the trigger for these more catastrophic health outcomes? Well, that's such a tricky question to answer. So... There are different, they're called biological pathways. So um, allergic reactions are a different pathway than autoimmune, but it's all the same underlying function, if that makes sense. So the, it's involving some of the same cells, but it's not using the same decision-making process. So the easiest way to explain this is that your cells have different things that they can do in response to an antigen. So when they come across something foreign or something that they don't like, they can make choices. And if you like to think of like a a, a pin code, so, you know, a four-digit pin code, and then you have 10 numbers. And if you've forgotten your pin code, that's thousands of possibilities. Mm. Your cells have a similar ability. So that's also why every individual will that doesn't look exactly alike. So I might have a shellfish allergy and you might have a shellfish allergy, but they won't express the exact same way. Yours might be really mild, whereas I'm ending up in the ER. And one of the reasons for that is the decision-making tree that's happening within us is different. And so that's what makes allergies really difficult to treat and also to diagnose is that a cell has so many different possibilities for turning on those mechanisms. But there probably is a relationship. I mean, I I do want to just say, before I forget to say it, that it actually means your immune system is strong. So if you're having a disorder with the immune system, your immune system is functioning quite well. It's just mistaking harmless things for harmful things. And so it's responding quite strong to the wrong triggers, but it doesn't indicate that your immune system is weak. So the upside is that people with allergies can sometimes have lower rates of certain types of cancer, actually, Hmm. um, because their immune systems are better able to spot a rogue cell and then take care of it. So there's definitely downsides, but there's a little bit of an upside. That's some good news. Uh, let's go to Natalie in San Francisco. Natalie, you're on the air. Yeah, hi. Um, I wanted to ask two things. One is you haven't mentioned blood tests for food allergies or allergies in general, but notably food allergies. You mentioned skin tests, and I'm a confirmed uh, 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 allergic person to the casein A1 in cow's milk, and I learned this 40 years ago and then trial and error you know, ultimately confirmed it, and all my symptoms, arthritis and and uh, sinus congestion and stomach cramps and all that went away, disappeared when I gave up cow's milk. And now there is there are products appearing on 
normal shelves, advertising A2, which is casing A2, which is what's in sheep and goats and Jersey cows. So I wanted to know if you have studied that or co- want to comment on that. So, so first, blood tests. Blood tests, so that's usually the second step. So if they can't figure out from skin what's going on, they will order, especially, so I should say that, and I didn't say that before, skin tests are notoriously a bad predictor of food allergy. So they will do a blood test, which is much more accurate for food allergy, still not perfect. So the gold standard for food allergy is the challenge. So the double blind oral challenge. So you'll go into a clinic, they'll give you a small trace amount, wait 45 minutes, and then measure your antibody response and and see what's happening and see if you have any symptoms. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm not quite sure about the different, um, types of protein or if there's any cross reactivity that could possibly happen between those different types of protein. So one of the interesting things about IgE response is that if you like to think of them as bouncers, so they can either let something stay or they can kick something out. And, but they're given a specific, um, imprint or fingerprint or mugshot, if you will. Mm-hmm. And so if it is that thing, so let's say um, it's been told that there's a 6'2", brown hair, blue-eyed person that we need to um, watch out for, well, a lot of things are going to look like that. So it really depends on how similar those protein structures are. So that's why a lot of people who are allergic to one tree nut will be allergic to multiple tree nuts because they're in the same family and the proteins are similar enough that it will trigger the immune response, even though it's not a direct match. So I don't really know enough about cow's milk versus sheep or goat's milk to answer that, to be honest. Well, we're going to have to take a break here. You're listening to Forum. I'm Leslie McClurg. I'm in today for Mina Kim. We haven't gotten to, to climate change and stress, but we're going to talk about how climate change and stress are also playing into all this and unfortunately making some of our allergies worse. We're talking to Teresa McPhail. She's a medical anthropologist at Stevens Institute of Technology in New Jersey. She's written a new book, Allergic, Our Irritated Bodies in a Changing World. And we want to hear from you. Do you suffer from allergies? Are they, debilita- are they debilitating? What's worked for you? What kind of treatments are helpful? Do you have any questions for Teresa? Email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org. Or you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. Or give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Leslie McClurg. I'm in today for Mina Kim, and we're talking about why allergies are getting worse with Teresa McPhail. She's a medical anthropologist at Stevens Institute of Technology in New Jersey. She's written a new book, Allergic, Our Irritated Bodies in a Changing World. And we've hinted several times that, that climate change is a factor here. So why is my, my nose running a lot more in the spring <laughs> this year and in recent years? Sure. It's a, it's a whole host of factors kind of combining. So First off, obviously, with warming temperatures, you get plants love them. So like if you're getting warmer uh, temperatures in different regions, you'll get um, encroachment. So plants that are usually only found in the south will start working their way up. So possibly you're seeing different plants in an area that didn't usually have them. But you're also getting extended growing seasons, which can be quite dramatic. So it might just be a few days in the south, but in the north we're seeing um, the start of pollen season coming like a month early, six weeks early. And so you're kind of extending that. And then at the other end, you're not getting a killing frost. So for things like ragweed, they're usually killed off at the first frost. So that would have been in the northern hemisphere around end of September, um, 1st of October. But these days, last year, it went all the way into Thanksgiving. So you're just having an extended amount of time. But the amount of pollen is actually greater because plants love CO2. So there's a lot more carbon dioxide in the air. And a lot of plants just think that's great and are thriving under those conditions, ragweed being a prime example. But also in the past, um, nitrogen was a limiting factor. So ragweed couldn't get out of control because there was only so much nitrogen in the soil and plants need nitrogen um, to grow and to thrive and survive. And so pollution really rains down. So nitrogen is in the air, it settles onto the uh, soil and it actually becomes uh, great for the plants because they have an additional source of this nutrient that they need. So they're loving life. So you're, we're seeing a lot more things like poison ivy and ragweed simply because of this whole host of changes in their environment. Well, Pete tweets, and this is on the, on the stress front, please address the emotional and stress component of allergic response, particularly for asthmatics and in children with fearful, overprotective parents. Responses can be induced or magnified. So what role is stress playing here? Oh, my goodness. I, I Thank you, Pete. That's great. Um, I'm happy to talk about the stress. Um, twofold. One, levels of stress can affect your immune system. So let's talk about that first. So, you know, we all are living in a pretty stressful world, you know, trying to make ends meet, um, you know, things going on. Like right now in New York City, we're dealing with the wildfire smoke out of Canada. So there's a lot going on. People are feeling really stressed. And stress can have a direct effect on immune function. So there's that. But then, um, additionally, if you do have even a, a kind of mild or moderate and definitely for severe allergy sufferers, the anxiety and depression that they feel as a result of coping with their immune systems being irritated by the things around them is quite significant. So researchers that I spoke to here in New York um, have found that 
the stress levels of parents who have a severely allergic child, either asthma or food allergy, they can have stress levels akin to someone who just had a, a massive heart attack. So yeah, it's really intense because if you think about it, I mean, so for the sufferers themselves, there's a lot of anxiety because they know what can happen. So that anaphylactic response that I talked about, or even an asthma with your um, lung muscles cr contracting and not being able to get the, the air that you need, it can be very, very scary. And so you start anticipating it. So you, you're like more nervous in the world than a non-allergic person because you know what's possible. And you, you know very well that you can't always stay away. You can't always avoid your triggers. So it becomes really stressful. And for the parents of children who have severe eczema, asthma, and uh, food allergy, it just can be really, really uh, intense because they're worried about their children. Of course, we all want our children to be happy and healthy. And then, you know, they're watching their children's skin break out or they're nervous that they might go to a birthday party and someone's going to make a mistake and they're going to put, you know, peanuts in something that, you know, and unbeknownst to the child, the child's going to eat it. It's just, it's like living in a different in world. They're much more aware of all the invisible things around them that can potentially impact them and harm them. So it is quite emotional. And I should also say they're not, they just don't feel well. And when you don't feel well, you tend to suffer on mentally, right? Like, so you're not sleeping. Um, people with respiratory allergies and asthma and eczema, they just don't get good sleep. Um, children with uh, asthma often have lower test scores because they're sleep deprived and they have a harder time focusing. So this really has a lot of effects in just day-to-day -day living that eventually takes a, a really high emotional toll. So I'm thankful that Pete brought this up because it really is a, a big problem. Well, let's go to, let's bring another caller in, uh, Jordan in Berkeley. Jordan, you're on the air. Hi, good morning. Uh, so I uh, developed a food allergy late in life. I'm, I'm now 61 years old, about uh, four years ago. After eating avocados for 50 years, I was camping and came back to camp, and dinner wasn't quite ready yet, but there was a lot of guacamole. And loving avocados and guacamole, I went to town on it. And within <laughs> about an hour, I had full-body hives. Uh, never had a problem with avocados before. Um, didn't really think much of it, thought it was maybe an allergy to grasses or something like that because I occasionally get seasonal hay fever. Uh, but then about six months later, the same thing happened again. Uh, and so I finally decided to go in and get tested. I had that skin test with the dried avocado. It was negative. So they had me bring in a fresh avocado, which they took a sample from and gave me a skin test with the fresh avocado. Boom, it immediately lit up. They said it was such a strong reaction that now I have to carry an EpiPen with me. Um, and it's really confounding because I love Mexican food. I love sushi. <laughs> There's avocado and everything in California. <laughs> and it's God's food. I am so sorry, Jordan. That is tragic. <laughs> I am also sorry. That is, if I couldn't eat uh, uh, guacamole again, I'd be really sad about it. Um, I, I, on Teresa, so it sounds like you can grow into an allergy because we do have another comment uh, from Jack who says, you know, can you grow out of an allergy? Yes, to both. Okay. Yeah. So uh, 
It used to be. So here's how one of the reasons we know that allergies are actually getting uh, a little bit worse is that it used to be unheard of to develop an allergy later in life. And now um, allergists that I spoke to, food allergists, are saying it's becoming far more common. And they're not quite certain why. It could be that, I mean, I do know that we know that upon repeated exposures to something, so a good example is botanists who work with the same plant, um, they'll eventually develop a really strong negative reaction to that plant's pollen just because they're coming into contact with it repeatedly and their bodies are getting irritated by the, the amount of it. So we do know that repeated exposures can produce stronger reactions over time. So that makes sense for people developing an allergy later in life that they are simply just triggering a, a response that wasn't there before, either because they're coming into repeated contact or because something else has changed and affected immune system function. Um, and the same thing is possible in reverse. So uh, a lot of children will grow out of their allergies. So they might have had an egg allergy uh, as a child, and then when they're an adult, it's not a problem at all and or eczema so a child who had severe eczema all the way up until 10 or 11 suddenly it'll get under control and then they never have a problem again so it's really just depending on a whole host of factors again it's like genetics but it's also your environment it's your stress levels and it's how your cells are making those decisions and that is the biggest mystery of all is why your cell will come across something and think Yes, you can stay on one day and no, this is a problem on the next day. It's almost like our immune cells have minds of their own and we really don't understand how they are deciding what can be a part of us and what has to go. Well, I would be remiss if we didn't cover in this air in this hour, you know, what can we do? So we've talked about avoiding it. We've talked about how to find out if you have them. But what else is on the table in terms of people who are, are suffering from allergies to make them feel better? Yeah, so avoidance is the number one thing, not having the reaction in the first place. But that's impossible for a lot of people. So for the, here's the, the the slightly depressing news is that the treatments haven't really changed that much in 100 years. So if I exhumed someone from, that was working in an allergy clinic in 1930, they wouldn't need a lot of time to get up to speed. So it's basically antihistamines, so trying to stop that histamine response that I was talking about earlier. Steroids, so we know that steroids tamp down the immune system. So we'll give people topical steroids and of course inhaled steroids for people who have asthma and respiratory allergies. The problem with steroids is you can't use them for that long because they have a negative effect because you're basically using a sledgehammer and just hammering your immune system. And so people often, you know, can risk developing secondary infections or, or, you know, you can't, you can have liver problems develop, like your body just doesn't want the steroids nonstop. So we've had really no other options for the longest time. There are some bright hopes on the horizon. So there are a few new drugs that are biologic drugs, so they're more targeted. They aren't sledgehammers. They're trying to just affect part of those mechanisms that are turning on during an allergic response. So one of them is called Dupixent, and it works for eczema and asthma. And it's basically just getting in 
get involved in that early histamine response and trying to turn it off in a specific way. And it has been showing great promise. That being said, it doesn't work for everyone. About 25% of people will not respond to that drug. And um, it does have a high risk of developing other infections, say conjunctivitis. And so none of the things we have right now are perfect solutions. They all have side effects and they don't work permanently. Or like in the case of Depixent, you have to take it long term. So you can't, it's not like you take it for two months, you take it indefinitely. Um, and they can be quite expensive. Dupixin is about $4,000 a month without insurance. I mean, Ooh. with insurance, I know. With insurance, it's obviously going to be better than that. But it's not a perfect solution. And the trickiness is, is we can't really cure allergies because we can't turn off our immune function. And we wouldn't want to. And so a cure would mean we have to somehow find a way to train the immune system to not react negatively to allergens. So things like immunotherapy have great promise. So immunotherapy is, is giving a patient a really trace amount of whatever their bodies are reacting negatively to and hoping to induce a certain amount of tolerance to that thing. So just over time, slowly increasing the amount until the body can handle a certain amount of that thing. But again, not all people are created equal. So sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. It has a better effect on food allergy. It has quite an iffy record with respiratory allergies. So we're kind of stuck right now, I hate to say. Well, at least you've underlined that this is a problem, and maybe maybe your book will inspire some more research. Uh, we're talking about why allergies are getting worse and the science on how to treat them with Teresa McPhail. She's a medical anthropologist at Stevens Institute of Technology in New Jersey, and she's written a new book, Allergic, Our Irritated Bodies in a Changing World. I'm Leslie McClurig. I'm in today from Mina Kim. This is Forum. Uh, let's bring in one more call, uh, or several more calls, sorry. Jennifer in Moraga, you're on the air. Hi. Um, my 11-month-old grandson has been diagnosed with nut and egg allergies through blood and skin tests. He's scheduled for the challenge, but hasn't had that yet. And I'm wondering, eggs are in so many things, baked goods, processes. How can, can, are there substitutes, egg substitutes? Do those work? How can you kind of live with an egg allergy it, in this world. Yeah, I'm really sorry to hear that. Um, it's it's really difficult. It's like learning how to cook a different way. There are thing, other things you can use that are egg-like <laughs> to avoid it, mm -hmm. but you're right. It is in a lot of things, and so it gets tricky to avoid that, and a lot of people don't really realize what egg is in, and so you have to become an expert label reader basically. And again, to go back to the stress that that can cause, like that can be kind of scary. Like you're really scanning everything to make sure that the child doesn't come into contact with that. So yeah, it's possible. I, I will say this, it's you're not alone and it is possible to adjust and, and live decently like this. It just is going to be a hard transition because you're going to have to relearn how to do everything. I noticed in the book, Teresa, you mentioned that, you know, you're trying to eat more whole foods, you're trying to sleep more. So in other words, because this is our immune system reacting, I mean, one thing that we can also all do, basically, is take care of ourselves more. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's not so easy to do that. Of course, you know, eating well is often expensive. And I should say, like, you know, this isn't, we don't talk about this enough. So if you do have a food allergy, there is, there are foods on the market now that are allergen-free, and it's a growing market. It's, it's going to be a $108 billion market by 2030. But those foods are more expensive. So if you need to avoid something like nuts or eggs, like you can purchase around them if you're not cooking your own food, but it's just so, so expensive. And but yet counter, right? Back in the day, we just were told to sort of avoid peanuts because just in case your kid had a peanut allergy and that that has changed. That advice has changed. Yes. And I, I just it's so unfortunate. So it was those it was based on the best advice and on the research. And I should just back up to say Allergy research has really been a backwater until recently. So if you looked at in 1990 at how many labs were studying allergic response, it would have been a very small number and they all knew each other. Recently, there's been more funding because this is a growing problem, especially with food allergies in children. So we've seen some more funding. So there wasn't a lot of research. So they initially said, well, if there's growing food allergies, let's restrict, let's make sure parents aren't introducing the allergenic food. So do not give your child peanuts until after three. And it turns out that was the exact wrong advice because your early immune system is kind of learning the neighborhood. It's learning what is good and bad. And so really what that advice did was keep protein, peanut protein out of the immune system. And so it didn't learn to tolerate it. It wasn't trained on it. And so they discovered that children who were being weaned in Israel with something called Bamba, it's basically a peanut paste. And they noticed that in Israel, there was a much lower level of peanut allergy. And so a researcher got curious and said, I think this is actually protective that they're giving it to them younger. And so they did a study and it did turn out to be the case that you had a much lower rate of people going on to develop uh, peanut allergy if you introduced it as young as six years old. So now we're telling people introduce allergenic foods in very small amounts as early as you can to see if there's a reaction. The tricky part is, is that sometimes that will help, but sometimes it won't. You could get a, a young child still having that reaction even as young as six months old. Tricky territory, Teresa. We've been talking about why more of us are getting allergies and what the latest research shows uh, with Teresa McPhail. She's a medical anthropologist at Stevens Institute of Technology in New Jersey. Her new book is Allergic, Our Irritated Bodies in a Changing World. And although although the answers are not easy, thank you for, for giving us some insights on allergies. We appreciate you joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. This Hour of Forum was produced by Rachel Vasquez. I'm Leslie McClurg. I'm in today for Mina Kim. Thank you so much for listening to Forum. Tomorrow we'll be joined by guest host Ariana Prail. Thank you. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.